All right, so it's been uh, on 12-3 is the last time I taught, and I think a week or two weeks after that, uh, or two weeks ago, maybe uh, Uncle Ray taught Sunday school, um, and then last week, Jordan filled in. So um, looking just kind of where we were, I know the, is this too loud? Okay. I know the last time uh, we were together on 12-3, I put a lot of information together in a 40-minute time frame, and uh, I think a lot of people's heads were going to explode. Rightly so. In retrospect, I shouldn't have put that much information in one lesson, and I had to cram a lot of stuff together. Which, uh, which isn't right. So my, uh, my apologies for that. And uh, what I thought would be best is kind of to go back, look at things a little differently, um, maybe review it a little bit differently than uh, how it was presented the first time. So uh, if you're not familiar, we're going through uh, systematic theology. And uh, just to review, theology really is the science of God. So from our standpoint, uh, the last from church history, uh, the Middle Ages, theology was called the queen of the sciences. And probably the 21st century, 18th to the 20th century, 21st century, theology in a lot of academic circles has been put on the back burner, which is unfortunate. But for our purposes here at Bible Chapel and in this uh, study, we're going to be looking at theology specifically in a systematic sense. So there are a couple of different possibilities of theology I thought would be helpful to review. Really, in the book that we're using uh, by Theosin, his systematic theology, he gives a, or lists four different types of theology. So the first one is, uh, you'll see, exegetical theology, and that's really looking at the text of the Bible itself. It's the study of the biblical text, looking at the original languages, the uh, the archaeology behind the Bible, and also the hermeneutics, or the meaning of the text. Uh, quick question, how, how many languages is the Bible written in? And then, what languages? Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Good, yeah, there's, there's three languages. So that's what exegetical theology is about, is looking at the underlying text. And then the next one's uh, historical theology, and uh, historical theology is really dealing with the history of the church. And we have close to 2,000 years of history that we have uh, the ability to look at in retrospect in the 21st century. So that's historical theology. So you can look at theology and the study of God from a historical standpoint. What did people believe throughout the preceding centuries in the church? And then uh, we have practical theology. So how is it that we're going to apply what we've learned to our lives? So how are we going to take what we're continually learning here in Sunday school or learning from the pulpit or learning in our daily lives, how are we going to apply that to sanctification? How are we going to make ourselves, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be more like Christ? And then finally, I think really a... A culmination of all of them is what we're going to be looking at, which is a systematic theology. It's a systematizing or putting or organizing the facts that are presented. You know, facts that are just presented are great, but in order for them to be coherent, we have to systematize them or organize them in order for us to better understand them. 
So really, you can think of systematic theology as really lumping these all together and uh, putting them to use for our edification. So uh, really, Theosin makes a good point here, is that exegetical theology is really the true theology. And what I mean by that is we have to be careful, especially like in a historical theology sense, we have to be careful that we don't believe something simply because we were taught it or simply because someone else taught it. So let me give you an example. Go to um, Acts 17, a well-familiar passage in uh, Acts 17.10. And uh, this is Paul and Silas when they go to Berea. Now, looking at verse 10, let me just go ahead and read this. Verse 10 down to 15. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness. And listen here. And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, Many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent men and women as well. And we'll stop the reading there. But the point is, is that this church of Berea, they were taught by the Apostle Paul himself. Divinely commissioned. He saw Christ on the road to Damascus, went around, around the known world planting churches. Yet nevertheless, these brethren at Berea check to make sure what Paul was saying and Silas were saying was accurate from the standpoint of the scriptures. So my encouragement is as we're going through this study, as we listen to the pulpit message, as you listen to other fellow ministers of the word, make sure that what you're believing is not simply because what Brother Calvin said or Brother Schofield or or St. Augustine. They were brilliant men. Nonetheless, we need to, in modern language, fact check what they were saying against the word of God. So that's my encouragement, is make sure that what I'm saying lines up with Scripture. Make sure what Uncle Ray is saying and Kevin lines up with Scripture. And that's really the purpose here, is to make sure that what we're teaching is proper. So, just a a brief background of theology, which I think would be helpful, and I don't think I uh, went into last time. So, again... We'll be looking at theology from a systematic standpoint. We may need to invest in an eraser. There is one. That's for chalk. Um, So just to begin here, theology grows really from two main aspects. We get theology, obviously, from the Word of God. But you can think of theology in the context of, of a seed. So we have theology down here. And I I enjoy illustrations, so I hope these are beneficial to you. So we have theology with man and God. Now, you're just going to see for illustrative purposes, they're on the same level. But we, of course, know that God and man are not on the same level. But just for purposes here, really, theology deals with two main areas of concern. The theology of man, the study of man and the study of God, and, of course, the primary being of God. But for our purposes here, we're going to go ahead and start really with the study of man. And uh, let me go ahead and read this here. We start with man and his endowments because it's who we are. All right. Theosin writes, the outer nor the inner world would disclose anything of God 
without unique endowments of man. What are endowments? Gifts, attributes, correct. Uh, Inherited qualities. In fact, uh, I don't know, I think I got this from Webster's Dictionary. Endowment, a quality or ability possessed or inherited by someone. We as humans have been gifted with certain attributes unique in the animal kingdom, attributes with which we can come to know God and have a personal relationship with God. Without these inherited qualities or gifts or endowments from God, we will be unable really to know anything of God. The attributes are made up of primarily two components, that of the mind, mental capacity that we're given, and also of the soul, spiritual endowments that we're given. So man has two primary ways of, two primary attributes, and you can uh, divide these down further, but just for simplicity's sake, we're going to keep it simple. And you can split spirit and soul. I won't get too much into it, but if you look at the Word of God, there's some differences between spirit and soul. But I think you get the gist of the argument here. So from man's standpoint, is we have two general attributes or two qualities that we have been gifted from the time of creation. And we'll look at the first one. We'll look at the top one, mind and mental capacity. And of course, I think we're all familiar that you can say that we're animals, not necessarily in the, in the sense of an evolutionary concept, but we're created beings. We're created creatures, of course, the archetypal one or the top one in the animal kingdom, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2. But nonetheless, inside the, the animal realm, reason, mental ability varies greatly. And I would say man is probably the most intelligent creature, although there are some uh, creatures, we'll look here in a second. But we have many of the same characteristics as animals on the earth. Humans are social, all right? We like to gather, like we're doing right now, with people that are close to us. We obviously eat for survival, like the vast majority of organisms and living creatures on the face of the earth. We also have a desire to breed and to procreate, which is necessary for the survival of humanity, also for the survival of uh, other animals, And we also communicate with one another, and most animals have some way of uh, communication. So from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, I think you can distantly see how you could say from the evolutionist's point of view, like we came from monkeys or we came from animals, because we share a lot of characteristics with the animal world. And let me just go ahead and read Genesis 1 to illustrate my point more, to drive it home more. 1, 21 to 26 says here, verse 21 of Genesis chapter 1, So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abound according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Verse 24, Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the field, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and all the earth and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. So we see commonalities that man has with other creation. What's the commonality? Yeah, two sexes, yes, very good. But we were, we were all created. We have a basic relationship with the rest of the world is that we were created. But if we stop there, then it would be completely evolutionary. There would be no difference between us and a gorilla and a dolphin or a chicken. And, of course, we know that's not the case. Our commonality with creation is our subordination to God. And again, we see here, this illustration is not to put man and God on the same level, but to understand where we came from as man. So let me give you, again, another illustration. So we all are created by God. But the mental capacity given to creatures across the spectrum varies greatly. So on the one hand, we'll try to use a a stupid animal, if you can call it a stupid animal. You have a chicken. I find great entertainment in watching chickens. They're very entertaining. They're very robotic. You know, they know what they're doing. They lay an egg every day. If it's a female, the rooster crows every single morning at sunrise. But yet they're not known necessarily for their intellect. But nonetheless, chickens have a pack. So usually if you get ten chickens, nine chickens will form a gang and generally speaking will try to kill one. It's very fascinating. Now, the people I work for, uh, sometimes on the weekend, they have a bunch of chickens. And they routinely have that, where seven or eight of the chickens will gang up and kill the outlier chicken, whether it be the weakest one or it's different. So we can't say chickens are completely stupid, but if a chicken dies, it really doesn't bother us. We, we really lose no sleep over it. Then you have a raccoon, which a raccoon is actually a very intelligent animal. We see raccoons lying dead on the side of the road all the time, and it it really doesn't bother us, maybe if you hit one. But a raccoon's a little bit more sophisticated than a chicken. And then, in the animal kingdom, you have some species that are at the top of the food chain, or the top of the mental spectrum, if you would say. Crows are actually brilliant animals. Brilliant animals. They can tell their young of dangers that the young have never seen, and the young crows will recognize it without even seeing it. But I think the apex predator, especially in the seas, is the killer whale. The killer whale is a brilliant species. The way that they hunt, the way that they communicate with each other, you have killer whales, say, in the Arctic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. They're completely different than one another. They can't even understand other pods' languages, yet they're so sophisticated and complex. So we have that on the animal spectrum of complexity, of of mental attributes and ability. Yet nonetheless, on that level are all the animals, and above them is man, created in God's image. And yet we as man have a greater sophistication than killer whales. I think even the evolutionists would have to admit that man has a greater sophistication than even these animals. And one fascinating 
aspect of that is our ability to have a conscience or awareness of what's going on around us. We know that killer whales are sophisticated. They're amazing creatures. Yet they don't have consciousness. They don't have the ability to understand reality that humans have been giving. And as I was studying this week, it really just struck me. When you actually think about it, we're aware of our surroundings, unlike any of the other created animals. We, as man, can have a relationship with God. And again, the evolutionists, the scientists of this world, the psychologists, they don't necessarily know how man is conscious or con- conscious, conscious. How, how do man have these attributes of, of being aware, knowing that we exist? And I know I'm kind of getting into the sublime, but nonetheless, it's, it's fascinating to think about. And let me go ahead and read you this quote from Psychology Today. Definitely not a right Christian-leaning organization. One of the great mysteries of science is how physical molecules we as humans are made of, the same things everything else in the universe is made of, give rise to the mental state of awareness and hopefully understanding of what is going on around us to a considerable degree inside of our own bodies and minds. The how of consciousness has been dubbed an easy problem of consciousness. Even more puzzling is why we have such awareness. So even these people recognize, as they would clearly deny, most of them, the existence of God. Yet they inherently know that there is something different with man than the rest of the molecules that make up the known universe. They know that the molecules and the atoms and whatever subatomic particles that make up the moon or some distant galaxy, or some animal walking around, some housefly flying around in here, they intrinsically know that what is made up of those animals and of those rocks is different than what makes up man and our ability to have a conscience and awareness. Isn't that remarkable? Is the great philosophers long ago, Immanuel Kant, could not come to a coherent logical argument really of what man is what is his state what is his awareness what is he able to know do we actually exist and of course we know that we actually exist but i'm just trying to pass along just the the amazing complexity with which god has made man when he says that we're made in his image it's far more than that it's it's so deep and intricate and amazing to think that we as man are vastly, vastly different than the rest of creation. And where it begins and ends, I'm not sure, but why do we fight for life? It's because we know at conception with the sperm and the egg, is that sperm and egg become a person. It becomes a living being made in the image of God. And that person, at what age you become aware of your existence, I don't know. But it is marvelous and amazing to think about the difference, the creation of man, to the rest of creation, even a killer whale. One of the ways to attest of our being different from the rest of the animal realm is our possibility or ability to know God. A a gorilla can do sign language and all sorts of amazing things. But it has no concept or no ability to know of a higher power. It has no ability to know of God. 
or any other sophisticated animal. Yet, man has been given that general ability as we see in Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to Acts uh, 17 just uh, briefly here for a moment. Paul's famous uh, sermon on, on Mars Hill at the Oropagus, which is in Athens. And again, Athens, uh, the pinnacle place in the ancient world of philosophical thought and complexity. Yet they're worshiping some unknown God. And Paul says these words here, Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he has made man from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling. Verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that he or they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In 28, let me continue on. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Paul tells these atheists, at the end of the day, the Athenians were really atheists, as is most of the world, but he tells them that they can, as man created, they can seek God. They can know God. We as believers know from the Bible that the reason we've been given the ability to think, to be aware, to have a conscience, to have mental state, is ultimately so man can know God and his power. That was the original intent or our purpose at creation, is for us to have fellowship with God for eternity. What's striking about this fact is the nature of the history of mankind. Now, people would say, well, God doesn't exist. Well, that's kind of fascinating because if you look back at all of the cultures in human history, every single culture that's ever existed, whether it be from China, whether it be from Russia, India, South America, Africa, even here in the Americas, every culture had some sort of idea of a higher power. They had some rationale or reason to believe that there was something presumably in the sky, that was greater than them. And I think that attests to the hardness of man's heart, of course, is because they rejected the true God, according to Romans chapter 1. But also it attests, I, I, I think, to the uniqueness of man, is that no matter where you go in the world, different cultures that had no communication or contact with each other had a unique sense that there was something greater outside of them. Let me, uh, let me read this. A gentleman named uh, Joshua Mark, I think he's atheist, but he said this, religion from the Latin religio, meaning restraint, or relegae, according to Cicero, meaning to repeat, to read again, or most likely religionem, to show respect for what is sacred, is an organized system of beliefs and practices revolving around or leading to a transcendent spiritual experience. And listen to what he says here. He says, There is no culture recorded in human history which has not practiced some form of religion. Some form of religion. And I cannot get past Romans chapter 1 and Acts 17, where Paul says we have been given the ability to seek God. Oftentimes it's not pure, as we'll see, going and talking about the man's soul. But nonetheless, what a 
I think what an attribute or what a quality, what, what a verity to prove, I think, the ultimate existence of God. Is that man intrinsically knows, even with the hardness of his heart, that there is something greater. Even among the evolutionists, it's uh, difficult for them to come up with the origins of religion. It's kind of a snare for them. Some theories are 30,000 to 100,000 years ago, give or take a couple thousand years, I guess. Is that as man expanded, as they grew in society, they needed some system or something, some rule of law, some restraint to keep people from going off the ranch and stealing stuff and murdering, and that's how religion came about. But I think that's just a really weak argument. But nonetheless, it's with these general attributes given to all men that we possess the possibility of coming to know God. So before I continue, any have any comments or questions before we go on to the spiritual aspects of man? And again, feel free to shout out any time. If you have a disagreement or something, then please say something. Yeah, that's a good point of clarification. I would say, like, even the vast majority of people were actually true atheists in the sense that maybe they they say God exists, but they live their lives as if no God exists. So that, that's a good point of clarification. The Athenians weren't true atheists. They had a pantheon of gods, but they lived their lives like they were atheists. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Correct. Yep. It is. Yep. Dad. Yes, Rick.
That's a wonderful add-on. Thank you. Yeah. It is, it is remarkable to see when you see people without hope as they get closer to death. At least someone who's young, say myself at 26 years old, if I was an atheist, good life, I have another 50, 60 years remaining. A lot of things to explore and experience, but if you have no hope, if you have nothing to look forward to, your, your life is miserable. Once you reach 70, 80 years old, your, your clock's ticking. You, you have nothing to look forward to. And um, it, from an atheistic standpoint, as, as we get older, we, we know we have a hope in Christ and knowing God. And I think that that's ultimately remarkable. Uh, so continuing on, man's spiritual endowments. So man's spiritual endowments, again, how the spiritual endowments of man work with the cognition or awareness of man, I, I, I can't exactly say. I couldn't even begin to fully comprehend or fully explain but what we know from the Bible is that man does have a spirit. We have, we have a soul. God tells us that. And I think particularly in Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 2, 7, the, uh, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, I would say there is some disagreements among theologians what exactly that pertains to. But I can't help but see that it appears, at least from the Bible, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that this direct breath of life was not given to any other animal outside of man when God formed him from the ground. So perhaps when God breathed into him life, giving him life, it also was really the, the creation of his soul. That sets him apart from the rest of, of creation. Just to kind of think again, as, as I was thinking this week, sometimes you sit in just utter amazement. You ever think about your soul? You ever think about the soul of man? As you're sitting here, I, I know right now from God's word that I have a soul. I know from God's word that every person in here has a soul. Yet how do I prove that I have a soul. Can I look at myself? Can I look at my fingers? Can I tell you I have a soul necessarily? I mean, I can tell you, but it's not necessarily verifiable by any scientific experiment. It's not possible. Again, Immanuel Kant, he tussled with this reality of whether man has a soul or not. And again, I'm not sophisticated to be able to explain his arguments. All that I know is that he was one of the chief minds of the last thousand years and he could not give a satisfactory answer to the soul-spirit understanding of man. Yet we know in God's word that we do have a soul. Man is the only physical body, soul, creature in the created order. That's what sets us apart also. Is yes, we have awareness, but we're also a creation, just like the animals. But what sets us apart is that we have a physical body, but we also have a soul. No other animal has that. The lion has a physical body, no soul. The angel has a soul, but no physical body. Now, occasionally you'll see in the Bible they will come to earth in, in the form of a man. And how that all works together, I'm not exactly sure. But what we know is that angels are spiritual beings. Man is the only one with both. 
a physical body and a soul. And again, to reiterate what I said before, because of our souls, the natural abode or place of man, of physical man, is to be in the blessed presence of God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, their perfect souls and subsequently their perfect bodies enjoyed fellowship with God, walking with him. So with our awareness, our consciousness, our reason, and because we have a soul, we can, we should deduce or know that God exists, according to Romans chapter 1. Because we have a soul, because we have a consciousness, we can know that God exists. And ultimately, through Jesus Christ, through reconciliation, we can have a relationship with God. Now, let me take a step back here. Bear with me. There are plenty of people that have a theistic belief, and theistic is just a God belief. There's plenty of people, Muslims, Hindus, Jews. I'd say there's plenty of Christian people who are Christian in name only who say that God exists, yet because their soul, their spirit is not right with God, they ultimately have no relationship with God. And what do we ultimately know is what happened in the Garden of Eden is that the soul of man was polluted. It was marred. It was scarred. It was ultimately not destroyed, but the relationship that the soul of man was able to have with God was forever severed. It was disconnected. We were never able to have communion with God ever again on the basis of what we did. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 6, the thoughts and hearts of men were perverse repeatedly, forever. We go to the New Testament, we have Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. We have Colossians chapter 1, we were enemies, we were aliens of God. So the natural soul of man, yes, has the possibility of knowing God, but without foreign intervention, without the outside power of the Holy Spirit, our souls would never, ever have reconciliation with God. And that's the marvelous nature of the gospel. Is it, it makes so much sense. When you think of the state of man, when you think of the state of the world, all of us know that something's wrong. All of us know that there's a higher power. But it is incapable for us, naturally, to come back into a relationship with that higher power. Romans 1.19, again, just to reiterate, because Paul says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. R.C. Sproul says this about the soul. The soul, as a created entity, is mortal. It survives the grave only because it is sustained and preserved by the power of God. It is preserved for eternal felicity for the redeemed, It is preserved for eternal punishment for the damned. And again, the soul was not eternal. It didn't pre-exist for all time. Our souls, whenever it is, probably at procreation, our souls are are created and then are, are mortal because of what the Holy Spirit does for us. And again, just to close here, there's a real sense, according to Scripture, we can only know God through our souls. Yes, we have the ability from our mind to know God, but ultimately our relationship is from a soul standpoint. And we see that 
in the hope of the resurrection. Uh, reading through First uh, Corinthians 15, the Corinthians were, some of them were denying the resurrection. They were denying the resurrection of Christ from the grave. How idiotic is that if you're a Christian? But Paul says that Christ is the first fruits from the grave. Christ is the guarantee from the grave. So right now, departed brothers and sisters in the presence of God are simply in the presence of God with their souls. Their bodies are rotting in the grave currently, or their ashes, or whatever they are. But we have as Christians a glorious hope that not only our souls, but at the day of the resurrection, the day of the judgment, the great day of the Lord, as Paul says, our souls will be met with our bodies, our physical bodies, and then body and soul will forever be in fellowship with Christ for all time. 1 Corinthians 2.12, let me just close with this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So by God's grace, as we continue on through this, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can come to know more and more of the truth of the gospel. And if you're here today without Christ, I'm sorry to tell you, is you can know God, you can see and believe that there's a God that exists, but you can't have a personal relationship with him because your soul is blackened. It's dead, and you only need the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken and that you would see the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's all I have for today. We'll continue on. Uh, next week, we'll get into more of the uh, theist, uh, theistic application, so the apologetic arguments for the existence of God. So uh, I appreciate your attention. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we close? Yes. Yeah. Again, she was saying that there's a uh, there was a medical experiment in the early 1900s to he placed the doctor placed dead people on a scale or dying people and to see if he could measure the weight of a soul once they died and, and, and it went away. But again, I think that points to the intrinsic knowledge that we as human have humans have of something greater, of something more inside of us of God. So thank you. All right. If you have any other comments or questions, then, uh, then you can see me afterwards. Thank you.